0: Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life.
1: Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love & Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Averill.
0: Welcome to Love & Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. My first academic position was as a psychology professor at Chicago State University, and there I had this really incredible opportunity to teach an interdisciplinary course called Social Inquiry with a sociologist and an anthropologist. It was such a fun experience examining topics from our related yet quite distinct disciplines. Anthropologists, sociologists, and psychologists, we all study humans, but we approach this pursuit from very different vantage points. One of my favorite units in the course was on medicalization. It was one of my favorites because it's an issue I'm so very deeply concerned about. And just to be sure we're on the same page, medicalization is just like it sounds, It's conceptualizing conditions and problems as medical concerns, which is something we currently see quite a bit of in American society. We're bombarded with messaging, which medicalizes our experiences and our emotions at every turn. And as a psychologist, I'm extremely troubled by this trend, especially when it comes to how to address our emotional well-being. Do we medicalize every undesirable feeling attributing this emotion to a chemical imbalance and thereby assuming the only viable treatment entails psychotropic medications? And in fact, yes, currently we're seeing an enormous amount of medicalizing in our culture. According to the American Psychological Association, 13% of Americans are on an SSRI antidepressant. SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, Paxil, and Zoloft, to name a few. This represents a 64% increase in SSRI usage from 1999 to 2014. Interestingly, twice as many women are on antidepressants compared to men, meaning that 16.5% of all American women are on an SSRI, compared to just 8.6% of men. Now, of course, some people will say, well, that's a good thing. Depression is being recognized as a pervasive concern, one with which many people struggle. Mental health awareness provides support and treatment. It reduces stigma. This is wonderful. And of course, I agree in part psychotherapists spend our entire careers working to help those suffering with emotional distress. We want everyone to live healthy, happy lives, for sure. In addition, as many of you know from listening to previous episodes, I'm a psychologist who has long questioned whether SSRIs and other psychotropic medications actually provide the psychological relief pharmaceutical companies claim they do. In prior episodes, I've shared my skepticism and that it began very early in my career when Prozac had recently hit the scene making a huge splash as the wonder drug. And as a young therapist, I read the book Listening to Prozac, which sang Prozac's praises. But because I was taught to question narratives, especially when big businesses are making big money, I also read psychiatrist Dr. Peter Bregan's book, Talking Back to Prozac. Dr. Bregan revealed what most of us don't know, that the majority of clinical trials of new drugs are sponsored by, i.e. paid for and controlled by the pharmaceutical industry, which obviously presents a massive conflict of interest. Watching Big Pharma over the last two years has furthered my resolve to raise awareness regarding pharma's profit-driven agenda. Simply put, Big Pharma makes money when we medicalize our emotional state. If we view our sadness, for example, as a signal that an issue needs to be explored in therapy or as an indication that we need to adjust our mindset to establish more empowered thought patterns... We take charge of our emotional well-being. But conversely, if we view our sadness as a chemical imbalance, we've now medicalized our emotional state and will likely look to drugs for the, quote, cure. To think critically about our health decisions, both mental and physical, and to be empowered when making choices, we must keep in mind that pharmaceutical corporations are massive industries. In fact, I recently learned that they have three times as many lobbyists as big oil. When I share my concerns about the pharmaceutical corporations and their massive influence in psychotherapy and psychology and psychiatry, people often push back. They get frustrated with my stance. Some of them like their antidepressants and they believe that they have helped them. And you know how I feel about beliefs. I know how powerful they are. As Dr. Bregan puts in his most recent book, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, quote, As I concluded much earlier in talking back to Prozac, studies have confirmed Prozac and other antidepressants are no more effective than a sugar pill. Of course, they are far more dangerous, end quote. The research demonstrates The placebo effect, which you know from your Psych 101. Simply believing a pill is helping you can make you feel better. But as Dr. Bregan notes, psychotropic medications have side effects, some of which are annoying, like reduced libido and insomnia, and others are dangerous. Suicidal ideation and homicidal ideation have been linked to SSRIs. And that's why I keep coming back to this topic. For myriad reasons, medicalization is not the answer. So to provide us with some options that don't involve medicalizing our mental health, I'm pleased to welcome dietitian and fitness professional Christine Cohen to the program. Here's a little bit more about Christine. Over the last 11 years, as a New York City-based registered dietitian and fitness professional, Christine Cohen has transformed her practice from a traditional weight loss and fitness focus into a convergence of the powerful impact of movement and nutrition on mental health. Christine's own battle and eventual overcoming of depression, anxiety, and emotional eating sparked this change as movement became her antidepressant and was a major catalyst in her recovery. Today, she serves people as a mental health nutritionist, helping them resolve the physical causes of depression and anxiety using natural solutions. She works with her clients through online programs, coaching them to take empowered action on their mental health through optimizing nutrition, healing metabolic issues, supporting gut health, and making the mindset shifts to enjoy optimal well being, energy, and a full experience of life. My conversation with Christine Cohen. Right after this. Christine, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I am thrilled to have you. I have, for a very long time, had massive concerns about the pharmaceutical industry's influence on mental health. So when I came across your platform, I was like, okay, this woman and I, we align. And what you're doing is the very tangible work of saying... We know that drugs aren't going to cut it. We need to take action in different ways to level up in our mental health. So I'll let you tell your story as to how you got into this space. And I'm just really, like I said, I'm really excited to share your wisdom and your journey with my community. So thanks again for joining me.
1: I'm happy to share. So I, for the last few years, have been focusing on mental health nutrition. I'm a dietitian. I've been One for about a little over a decade. And, you know, I started out excited about nutrition, excited about fitness. I knew I always wanted to help people become healthier. But back then, early 20s, really you're just thinking about aesthetics when it comes to our health, you know, diet culture, just living in this century. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Health is equated to weight, weight loss, how you look aesthetics and all of that. And so, you know, I never even really gave mental health a second thought. I knew that mental illness existed, um, but I never even realized that I had mental health, that we have a level of mental health. And I would easily go out, you know, like in college, like go out for a run, go to yoga class, eating healthy, you know, Quote, I'll put air quotes around healthy. (laughs) Right. And it was all for, you know, I want to look fit, I want to look a certain way. And that was always my motivator behind like why I was doing the things I was doing. I didn't realize that mental health was a thing until I lost mine, until I started struggling with mine, which ironically was the same year that I started working as a dietitian and a personal trainer, like newbie. (laughs) Wow. Wow. What do you think was the catalyst
0: for you starting to struggle in that realm?
1: That's a great question. So at the time I had zero idea, no insight, no idea. It's hard to know. You just are in it. And Mm -hmm. I was just, what I noticed, which scared me was I gained 30 pounds in a matter of a few months I'm not taking care of myself. I'm sleeping all the time and I'm not feeling rested. I'm binge eating at the end of my days almost every day. I feel so out of control. And of course, I just blamed it on my willpower. I blamed it on I can't keep my shit together. You know, what's wrong with me? I am ashamed myself for it. Like, sure. wow, yeah. and you're going into work and supposed to help people get healthy and you can't even – keep it together yourself. Like what the hell's wrong with you? And that just made everything worse, obviously. So that was my experience like during it at the very beginning stages. In hindsight, now that I understand a lot more about the, the other root causes of depression anxiety and all the other symptoms I was experiencing, it was a combination of burnout, not managing my time, overworking, complete HPA, access dysfunction, which people know as adrenal fatigue, gut health issues, not giving myself proper nutrients through the food that I was eating, blood sugar imbalance and mismanagement, just not getting quality sleep, like so many things that went into, you know, they all kind of mix together and form a jumbled ball. But at the time, back then, which is again about 12 years ago, I... The education that I had around what depression was and anxiety was, I got from the University of Pharmaceutical Commercials on TV. And that was, depression is a genetic mental illness. It is something you will struggle with for the rest of your life. And the only ways to manage it are through different medications and through therapy. And that that was a scary reality for me to accept because it felt like succumbing to something that I would have to deal with for the rest of my life. That was just, I don't know. I just like was not in the acceptance mode of that. And so for better or for worse, I was like, I'm going to figure this out on my own, which is kind of how I operate, which has been great in some respects and then also not great in other respects. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I just did what I knew, which was not great. Which was, I'm going to health harder. I am going to work out seven days a week and I am going to cut out carbs and I am going to diet really hard. And I need to lose this 30 pounds because I need to look a certain way for the role that I do. And at the time, like I couldn't even get out of bed most days to like roll out and go to work and like operate like a human being. I just felt so overwhelmed and just depressed and exhausted and brain fog and all the things. So like those really extreme commitments I was making, I could barely keep it together for one day. You know what I'm saying? So like that just even made it worse. Like I can't show up for myself. I suck. So how did this all turn around, right? The thing that really did it for me was, and I just wanted to like put a disclaimer, I don't have like a medications are terrible. They're a tool. And they are and can be utilized in different circumstances. I want people to understand that there are so many other things about our mental health that we have not known or maybe been taught. And so much is new. So much information is new so that it really allows us to see there are so many other causes of depression, anxiety that are not chemical imbalances in your brain that you have no control over and you actually are way more empowered in your mental health. And so how did I kind of come to discover that was I walked into a random yoga class, one random good day. And I walked out and I felt completely shifted for the first time in months. Like I, I recognized myself. I'm like, Oh my God, there she is. Like there I am this person that I've known I felt lighter just emotionally and Mm -hmm. like some of the darkness had lifted. And it was the first time ever, ever, ever that I connected moving my body improves how I feel. Moving Mm. my body boosts my mood. Moving my body makes me feel better. And it was sort of in that moment that feels like a catalyst where I committed to myself, I am going to use this to heal myself. I'm going to overcome whatever this is. I'm going to climb myself out of this deep, dark hole. And exercise movement is going to be a part of that in some way or another. And that became sort of the day that I started to think about movement in a totally different way. And I really help people with is this paradigm shift of not focusing on aesthetics, but instead, you know, using movement as a way to feel better whatever I did, whatever I was doing to improve my health became about not being depressed anymore, about feeling a little bit better every single day, because this was what I saw as my way out. And then I just started making more and more connections. I started asking myself, well, what else helps me feel better? What else makes me feel worse? And I realized, wow, when I binge eat on a bunch of carbs and sugar, that definitely puts me into a depression. When I go out drinking with my friends, like I would do on the weekends, it knocks me back into a depression for days and days. What else helps me feel good? Wow. When I make sure I'm eating protein and uh, fueling myself throughout the day, when I'm moving, you know, very lightly, I would start off with like five minutes of movement. I wouldn't make it this huge life altering high expectation change. I made very, very tiny incremental movements. And so I started to realize, okay, there's a lot more in my power here than I've been taught, than I've been told. And so I would say like about four or five years ago was when I consider myself like recovered, where I'm no longer suffering or struggling with depression and anxiety. And that really sparked me wanting to understand why. So then I started to dive into research, neuroscience, and Understand, like, okay, was it just in my head that exercise made a big difference? Or actually, is there something to this? And so um, the perspective I take on mental health, especially depression and anxiety, or even just like undiagnosed, feeling off and stressed and just out of sorts in your own, in your own body and your own mind is a functional nutrition approach, which just looks at the whole system, all the systems of your body as one and how they all interact and really discovering that there are a lot of causes to depression and anxiety that are underlying in your body and that there are a lot of solutions that are in that space as well.
0: Well, I think that paradigm shift you noted, I think women in general can't speak for men, definitely can't speak for all women in different generations, but with my generation, we definitely weren't thinking about nutrition for the sake of nutrition to fortify our bodies so that it can be functioning at its optimal level. It was about how many calories, how many laps around the track do I have to run to make sure I get into my bikini for spring break? It was never about nurturing this body that we've been given Mm -hmm. and thereby there's no such thing as mind body dualism because we're one entity thereby also nurturing our mental state no one was thinking about that no one was talking about that and in fact a lot of the messaging was contrary to that because it was really just about how can I consume the fewest calories so that I can have the body I want but it didn't matter if as long as the body looked good who cares if it was internally starving or internally full of of crap right? that's not serving it whatsoever. And yeah. that's a really hard shift I think for women because like you said, it's about the aesthetics. It's about the appearance.
1: That just reminded me of, I did a bodybuilding competition, like a few, I don't know, God, it was probably like seven years ago. I'm like, it was a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long yeah. time ago. That's how time goes. <laughs> and I'm small, like in general. So it wasn't, you know, I didn't have like massive muscles or anything like that. And it was completely natural. And I was eating what someone, you know, looking at my aesthetics would be like, oh my God, she's so healthy. Like she's so fit. She's so spelt. But that was probably one of the most unhealthiest times of my life compared to when I wasn't taking care of myself at all and really struggling with depression and anxiety. And so that actually perpetuated my eating disorder that perpetuated my depression. I went to a deep depression after that bodybuilding show, gained back a ton of weight um, and had to dig myself up and out again. And it it is a mental shift for sure. But when you start to feel yourself feeling better and you realize, wow, I'm so much more free in my life when i am unlearning this this thing that i've been forced to learn and i think that is helping me but is actually making me feel worse you do make those shifts
0: i'm so thankful for the work you're doing because it really takes hearing that From your personal experience and obviously our stories, our personal journeys are so powerful to share. This is what I went through because there's a lot of resistance. And I think I'm curious to hear some of the resistance you get from people who come across your work because they have identified with, I have depression, I have anxiety. They've internalized it as part of who they are. They've been duped by the pharma commercials saying that there's neurotransmitter imbalances. We don't know that that's true. Even if you have low levels of serotonin, you can do things to boost your serotonin. And even cognitive therapies are shown to rewire your neural pathways such that you can have a more default mode of thinking in a positive manner. So... Getting back to your story here, for whatever reason, when you first had the common understanding Mm -hmm. of this is what depression is, it's a serotonin imbalance in your brain, and you'll always need to be hopped up on medications. And if your Prozac doesn't work, then you'll have to take Abilify, an antipsychotic, but that's your chaser, your Prozac chaser, because your Prozac didn't work. So of course, if your Prozac's not working, throw another drug at the problem. So how did you resist that? Because so many people, I think, and I understand it, because... The one part about a label or a diagnosis that feels really good is, okay, I'm not the only one. There is a treatment plan for this. And if I have to take on the identity of being someone with depression, I have depression, so be it. But you resisted that. The pharma influence has been so pervasive. I think most people just go, okay, I guess I'm depressed and I'll always be. And I'll always be on medication like a lot of people are on meds for this, that, and the other for their entire lives. What about you? caused you to resist that?
1: That's such a great question. A few things come to mind. One was fear and stubbornness. (laughs) (laughs) Both can be useful. Both can be useful. (laughs) At that time, and I say this if I were to change anything at that time, it would be I would have reached out for help. I was embarrassed. I mean, talk all that up to stigma and whatnot for sure. Sure. So it was, it was fear of having to admit that. But I will also say that I was raised in a household where we didn't take medication for a lot of stuff. Like my mom was never one to like, you know, throw antibiotics at us and aspirin for a lot of things, or even like taking us to the doctor for every little ailment and stuff like that. I also am probably one of few women who've never been on birth control before because i just chose to not put that into my body and so i think i might have a little bit of a skepticism about medications in general even before i understood more about science backed neuroscience backed solutions for mental health
0: yeah and i think obviously you know where i stand on such things i had a healthy skepticism because of my father And he was not the hippie generation, but he had that kind of sensibility when it came to, he was also at the health food store. He was a professor. So he was getting wheat germ and wheatgrass shots and granola and things that in the 70s, it was kind of a thing. And yeah, same in our house, we had no cough syrup. If we got a cold, he gave us two vitamin C and a panathetic acid. (laughs) So I was primed, like you, to question such things. And I do invite people to be curious and to question because. Only when we ask these questions and do some of our own research like you did, are we able to truly empower ourselves? Otherwise, we're just swallowing a narrative that may be in service of another entity. And in this case, lining the pockets of shareholders of pharmaceutical corporations. And again, as women who strive to to share our stories and our journey and to empower one another, to my mind again, going back to my research as a psychologist, my dissertation was on identity development. I don't see us being empowered to take on a label that is so disempowering. When we know there are so many other neurological, physiological truths that we aren't availing ourselves of this information unless we reach out to someone like you. So that's why I love what you're doing, letting us know our mental health is much more in our control than we have been led to believe. When I come across an empowered woman who's all about empowering others, I want to share her journey with you, which is exactly why I invited Brooke Mullen of Sapan to the program in episode 190. Sapan's luxury leather bags and accessories not only look good, they're helping make the world a more beautiful place by honoring the basic human rights of workers throughout their value chain. They fully embrace a regenerative business model that prioritizes personal empowerment over charity. And human rights is at the heart of all Sapan does. If you're all about this, buy a beautiful bag and uphold human rights life, head over to sapon.com and use promo code LOVEANDLIFE for 15% off your purchase. That's Sapan, sapah and promo code LOVEANDLIFE. So let's talk a little bit about, you've talked about movement being key. You've talked about nutrition, obviously. What were some of the things that you really stumbled upon that maybe, I know gut health is something I'm hearing a little bit more, microbiome. Where did your research take you from that initial moment of, man, yoga, it's not just to zen out for a moment. I feel so much better and so much in touch with with who I am mentally and physically after that yoga class. And then that started you down this journey. What sort of knowledge did you gain over the last several years?
1: Yeah, so much so that it's completely blown my mind open (laughs) as to, wow, we have no idea what mental illness actually is. And we are just really scratching the surface of it and science is supporting it now. So for example, uh, when it comes to movement, and it does, it didn't matter if I walked into a yoga class. It could have been I went out for a walk. It could have been I went uh, dancing. But movement, exercise, is incredibly powerful on our mental health for many reasons. First and foremost, it increases all of our feel-good brain chemicals from serotonin to dopamine to the endocannabinoid system to um, other hormones that our muscles actually put out when they are contracted. Put it this way, all the brain chemicals that pharmaceutical drugs are designed to influence, exercise does that naturally and better because it's not artificially doing anything. It's actually naturally increasing things and balancing them out. Exercise is also a natural stress on the body. And a lot of what research is showing about anxiety and depression is that it is a dysfunction in our stress system. Either we are too stressed, stressed, imbalanced. Inflammation is a big part of that systemic inflammation where we have inflammatory markers that are shown to be elevated in people with depression. And when they do things to decrease inflammation, their depression also their depression symptoms also decrease. And so exercise is a natural stress on the body, giving you like a, a practice dose of stress for the real life show, which is life. Mm-hmm. And it helps your body get better at stress, um, become more resilient. That not only affects the body, but it affects actual brain tissue and neurons. It wasn't even known as of a few years ago that we could grow new neurons past the age of 25 years old. Yeah. when our brains start to, to completely develop. And so with new neurons, like we have new firing capacity of new wiring capacity. Something that is super interesting just about the brain growing is that when they study certain areas of the brain in people who have depression, they're shown to be smaller, specifically prefrontal cortex, which is where we sort of make all of our executive functioning decisions, um, as you know. And when we exercise, we also release a factor that's called BDNF. And I just like to call it miracle grow for the brain because mm-hmm. it actually helps um, those parts of the brain phys- like physically grow. And so they can see that, you know, in different brain scans and whatnot. So just on the movement side of things, it is incredible how it changes our biochemistry and changes our neurobiology.
0: What you just said, and there's a lot that I did not know because you've really gotten into the nuts and bolts. Yes, I was aware of that our brains are much more malleable and the neuroplasticity stuff that we can have an impact on our brains, even past the point, like you said, in mid twenties, where most research now says that that's when the brain is fully developed, but it doesn't mean that it's fixed. It doesn't mean that it can't still be Trained essentially to work in our favor through movement. To me, that is so empowering. And Christine, also, I think of our current modern lifestyle pretty much puts us in the position to not do any of this <laughs> because we're so frenetic. We've got, we're so frenzied drive through meals and processed junk. Unless we're maybe in a city, we might be walking to the L, we call it in Chicago or the subway. But we're typically, we're going into our garage, sitting in our car, driving. We're not even having the opportunities for the most basic movement to stress our systems just a little bit. And so I think about how, of course, our screens, we're hunched over and looking at our screens at all times. It's no surprise to me when you think about the evolution of technology, which of course has wonderful benefits. We're talking thanks to technology right now. We're going to post this podcast thanks to technology. But we've also, we've stepped into a lifestyle that is pretty much the best way to have a horrible mental health.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sad and true. Sad and true. Our modern lifestyle does give us so many amazing things, but it is also kind of working against us. Like every natural, everything that helps us feel Our most human is what we do less and less. Like moving our body is what makes, you know, humans really incredible in the sense that we have done this evolutionarily for our entire existence to survive, to live, to gather food, to hunt, to build our communities and whatnot. And it is something that we do less and less. I think I read a stat that less than 5,000 steps a day is associated with poorer mental health. And I think most Americans get like less than 4,000 easily. Sure. It doesn't surprise me at all that. And I just
0: think about even all the, all the advances. I think about women a hundred years ago and they've got their laundry and they're scrubbing with their scrub board and they're getting nice guns because of it, you know, (laughs) but, We don't do any of that anymore. And it's sad because it's working against us. And then we step into this mindset that's so disempowered. And it it makes me frustrated that very simple solutions aren't being discussed. I mean, we can even go to the last two years. We know that people who were more likely to have problems with coronavirus were those who were overweight. We know that vitamin D, I saw a study that people who were hospitalized. The number one predictor of them being hospitalized was in fact vitamin D deficiency.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yet we were told, get out of the parks, don't go outside. You kidding me? <laughs> that is the worst advice ever. And again, so then it makes me really frustrated with pharmaceutical corporations because they don't want us getting optimal vitamin D levels because then we won't need their drugs. It's so frustrating. And, and I'm sure you see it as well with your clients.
1: Yeah, I, I meet a lot of people who are tired. Of the same BS. They're tired of feeling tired and not being able to help themselves. They want to do something different. And I think that more and more natural alternatives are being shown to be legitimate and not just like even nutrition for many, many years was not even given a second thought when it came to mental health. Mm-hmm. And that to me is literally insane. Just considering the most basic facts about even our brain chemicals. So like for example, at the very basic level, the way that we produce our brain chemicals like whether it's serotonin or dopamine or GABA or epinephrine, which are all very important in influencing how we feel, influencing our motivation, influencing our well-being, influencing our behavior. They're all made up of the raw ingredients to making them are amino acids and vitamins, vitamins and minerals. And if we're not getting just simply these amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, and these essential nutrients, vitamins, minerals, we're not making enough of these brain chemicals in our own body naturally. So to have to say that nutrition plays no role is absolutely ridiculous to me.
0: It's just a lie. It it is just a lie. And I understand everyone has their area of expertise. So if you went to a therapist, and yeah, I love my cognitive strategies, as I've spoken to a moment ago, that therapist would focus on your thought processes and your irrational beliefs and your cognitive distortions. And that would be wonderful. And that would be really helpful. I mean, all the research shows Mm -hmm. that cognitive therapies are as impactful and in fact, more effective for sustainable, lifelong, mm. positive thinking than meds and, and all the things. But to your point, wouldn't it be beautiful if we had a therapist who was then partnering with a nutritionist, who was then partnering with someone who was knew what you know about exercise and physiology, a holistic approach. I mean, this person would be bouncing back from the depths in a matter of weeks because it would be such a, a impactful wrap around approach to mm-hmm. their mental well being. With I mean, it would be epiphany after epiphany after epiphany, and starting with those small changes because we don't want to overwhelm anyone. Like, oh my gosh, I have to do an, a one eighty in every realm of my life. These small baby steps, profound change with big profound
1: impact. I love how you phrase that. You're right, and I fully say. Therapy and psychology are incredibly important and incredibly valuable, especially when it comes to recovery from things like depression and anxiety and learning how to interact in the world and and changing your cognitive thought processes and all of that. It's so important and it does play such a role, but so does the physiological part. And that's the part that I like to say I focus on are the physiological root causes of poor mental health because yeah they are the things that are not being talked about because it's not really understood and even most i would say most just like straight up nutritionists probably wouldn't know the detail of how to really care for someone's mental health when it comes to when it comes to nutrition when it comes to balancing out these discovering these underlying root causes of the body but it is a team effort and when you do realize, you know, you can go to as much therapy as you want and take, you know, as many meds as are necessary. But at the end of the day, if you have a nutrient imbalance or you are lacking in a certain mineral like magnesium, or you have a zinc and copper imbalance, um, or you are under-methylating or over-methylating, or you have gut issues that are preventing you from even absorbing nutrients properly, all of this can manifest itself as different mental illness symptoms.
0: And when you think about the physiological piece, what do you recommend? Is it, I mean, I know you mentioned that exercise in and of itself will boost hormones. It will help regulate neurotransmitters. And do all the things that the drugs claim to do, which I don't even know if I believe because I don't, a lot of times the studies are funded by pharma themselves. So we have to think about the conflict of interest there, but do you recommend some cardio? Also you mentioned stress and I know strength training is putting stress on our muscles that we need and, and so do you recommend uh, some strength as well? And then also, of course, the yoga, which is, oh, man, I mean, yoga kicks my butt. It is <laughs> so much harder than it looks. And it feels so good, too, just to get in those deep stretches. Then it's linked, again, to the cognitive realm because we're trying to quiet our mind. We're trying to breathe mm-hmm. through pain instead of resisting pain, which I think is, again, a pharmaceutical framework is to have pain. Let's get rid of it instead of going, well, maybe I can sit with this this painful stretch for a moment and learn to lean into it. Even let it teach me something, knowing that there's a greater good coming. Just yoga gives you that mindset of, I'm not trying to just, again, back to our current American culture, drive through microwave, quick, quick, quick. I don't want the pain. I'm done. Well, what if I'm going to learn something through this pain? And can I sit with that? Can I, let it be. Can I embody this space here and now for a moment? I mean, what's your approach for those realms, the strength training, the cardio, the yoga, all of those?
1: It's so funny because what you describe about yoga is the same thing that I say about strength training is yeah. that it's it helps me um, deal with stressful situations and know that I'm stronger than my mind is telling me in that mm-hmm. moment. But um, when it does come to different types of exercise. So the cool thing is that research shows that it doesn't matter, cardio or strength resistance training, both have an impact on improving our mental health, whether you are depressed or not, like no matter what, it will help improve that. And there's different research that shows like more intense types of training. You don't have to do it for as long. So like for vigorous training, they show improvements within 15 to 20 minutes with more of like a moderate style workout where you can kind of like keep going for about 30 to 45 minutes. And then for very light movement, just like a a walk outside 45 to 60 minutes, all of those can improve how you feel. So what I tell people, especially because usually when we are struggling, like just getting out of bed to wash our hair can be freaking hard, is that you want to ask yourself just what is one small thing that I can do? What is my bare minimum commitment to myself that I can at least get a check mark? I can at least start to build my consistency muscle, my integrity muscle and showing up for myself for something in taking care of myself. So for me, that was five minutes of movement. Sometimes I would literally just do that five minutes in bed. Other times it would be like rolling out onto the floor and doing something for five minutes. And other days I'd be like, okay, I did the five minutes. Like I kind of want to keep Going. Like, I kind of want to do more. And then I would, you know, go outside and do something, or eventually building up that inner strength got me to the gym and got me to doing more and more and more. But it just matters that you start and that you're consistent with whatever you're doing. And ideally, that you like what you're doing, because when we like the movement that we're doing, and this could be like riding your bike, it could be dancing in your kitchen, it could be playing with your kids, you get an additional dopamine boost from doing movement that you enjoy. And that just helps benefit you even more.
0: I like how you framed it as consistency, muscle, integrity, muscle. I think of mindset strategies and I I make this parallel quite often on the program that really taking charge of our thoughts is very much aligned with taking charge of our bodies in the sense that our thought processes if they've been left to run wild and have gone down negative pathways, that's the default mode. And so we have to start Mm -hmm. rewiring. And at first it's really hard. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. it would be really hard for me to get down and do 10 pushups right now. But I love that, that parallel to a muscle. I I think it really tracks and it really helps people go, okay, just like I couldn't run a marathon if I hadn't trained, it's going to take me a bit. But I'll get there. But I need to think about working out my mindset in a very similar manner as I would work out my body.
1: Right. So make it easy. Make it something that you can do. I can do something for five minutes. I can go out for a walk around my house, around the block. Make it something that is easy to get yourself to do and that you can physically do. People, I think, make the mistake of making too big, too extreme of a jump and then They can show up maybe once or twice, but then their consistency falls off and then they just spiral again. So I want you to build your consistency muscle and just do do the bare minimum commitments that you can do.
0: Yeah. It goes back to the baby steps. It really does. And to enjoy that, to give yourself that pat on the back. Like, okay, it was hard. Even the the small baby steps at first were difficult, but I did it. And that really builds self-esteem as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you see that with your clients where they come in and like you said, maybe having a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. And I love that you're able to say, listen, I get it. I was there. Like literally was there. I get it. And trust me, they can have faith because you really know where they are right now and what they're experiencing. And I think that's probably so inspiring for them. I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the Love and Life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events. And it's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free Empowered Dating Playbook. Christine, when you talk about a nervous system dysregulation and how that is going to be interrelated with depression and anxiety, help the listener understand what that's about.
1: Sure. So when it comes to our nervous system, anything that's stressful can throw us out of balance. And people might have heard the word like cortisol or our stress hormone, which gets produced in our adrenals. And when we are chronically stressed, which means our nervous system's in a state of fight or flight or freeze for an extended period of time, that's not what it was designed for. It was designed for short visits to fight or flight land. And we're supposed to live in social engagement mode or parasympathetic nervous system state. And that's where we feel our best. That's where we are literally our most open. We feel safe. We are our most curious. We have access to different parts of our brain that help us function and feel our absolute best in that in that safety mode, in that parasympathetic mode. But when we're chronically stressed, we live in fight or flight. And I think everyone's familiar with this, where we feel stressed and anxious and irritable. This is where panic attacks happen. This is where urges and cravings happen for things that are gonna help us feel better in the moment, but are not really good for us in the long run. Where we live there. And so when we live there chronically, it starts to tax our system. Our cortisol is gonna be pumped out more and more, our adrenaline is gonna be pumped out more and more. This is gonna Stress our system. And so, like, we run through our stores of nutrients and vitamins, and it requires actually more energy from our body to stay there. Generally, we're not sleeping well, which is going to tax and stress the body even more. And so, this dysregulation or just like imbalance of the stress system really starts to play on what we would experience as poor mental health symptoms after a while especially when the body starts to kind of be in a chronic state of inflammation as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's just that balance that can get so easily out of whack. And I know I know, there's still a ton of research being done to try to understand the connection with, like you mentioned before, adrenal fatigue. And I would imagine chronic fatigue is in, is in this realm as well, where we have a lot of these imbalances that just have been going on for so long. That like the stress levels have been elevated for so long that eventually there's going to be some damage that if it's not corrected through lifestyle, through nutrition, through supplements, perhaps there's going to be some problems that could really be long lasting. And then again, you've got this physiology that is telling you that you have anxiety when really it's a physiological imbalance that has been unfortunately been chronic for quite some time.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Have you heard? You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black. Don't wear white till it's right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amid single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. As we wrap up, Christine, I want to thank you so much again for joining me. What sort of word would you have for someone who might be listening and go, you know, Christine's story, good for her. But listen, I come from a long line. Like my mom was depressed. My grandma was depressed. My aunts are all depressed. Or my dad had anxiety. My uncles have anxiety. To that person, what would you say if they've really, they're pretty much convinced it's a genetic thing. It's hardwired into them what would you say to them if they don't really believe as much as they would like to believe, but they don't really believe that your approach would really be impactful and, and effective for them?
1: I know that's a, that's a hard one because you can't force people to believe something different yeah. if they are not ready to to go there. But I would just say, continue to be curious about yourself because being curious versus... Succumbing, that's not the right word, but to just that you can't do anything, that there's nothing in your power is a really hard place to live. And so, do you want there to be something that you can do about this? Do you want to believe that there is something that you can do that can impact how you feel? Is is a question I would ask myself. I would ask my clients or someone speaking to me about this. And if the answer is no, then that's that's your choice. And you can go continue to do the things that you're doing to take care of yourself in that respect. But if the answer is, yeah, I want to be able to do more of that or I want to be able to feel more in control, then we can start to unpack that and start to bring in some different facts. For example, depression isn't solely genetic depression is epigenetic which means the environment interacting with our genes is what causes our genes to express themselves and even have have that family risk come out in our reality in our bodies and in our experience of life and so there's a lot of lifestyle factors pretty much almost all of them minus you know like trauma that we encounter and things that happened to us. But there are a lot of lifestyle factors that we can do, not only to prevent a genetic expression, but to also heal our bodies. And so I, I hope for that person that even if a seed was planted today, that that would be something good.
0: Yeah, that's such an important point. We tend to think of nature versus nurture, but all the most recent research looks at the interaction of the two. And there's no such thing as genetic determinism, which is what you're speaking to with the epigenetics, meaning that even if you have a gene, say you have a gene that would make you have a predisposition to lung cancer, but you never smoke a day in your life, you're not going to turn on that gene. So there's really much more in our control. If, like you said, if we're curious, if we're willing to think about, well, What am I willing to do that no matter what the case is, that would help me feel more empowered and more in charge of something that has felt very much out of my control for a long time? But what am I willing to do? And taking maybe those small steps in that direction. So thank you for that. Also, Christine, I know you have a a mental health, nutrition, natural solutions program bundle that I'd love you to share and some programs and um, a freebie that you're willing to give away to the listeners? Yeah, so
1: the freebie is a workshop where I kind of give a great overview of a lot of the things that I discussed today and start to make some connections as to what are some of these natural solutions for our mental health and why they work, why they are actually potential potential solutions for us. And then that is, so that's a free workshop and you can sign up on my, you can find me on Instagram and sign up there or on my, I'm, I'm sure you guys can put a link to it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: And the program is guiding you through discovering root causes to depression, anxiety, low energy, brain fog, helping you discover and then apply natural solutions to helping improve how you feel and essentially helping you feel like alive and vibrant and engaged and connected with life again. And it's a great addition to therapy. It's a great addition for people if they are on medications. um, It's just putting more power back into your hands. It's helping you make more trust and connection tuning into your own body instead of always looking outside of yourself for answers. And I just want to continue to put that power back into your hands. Thank you so
0: much for sharing these resources with my community. And I really hope someone or many people will reach out to you because I think what you're doing is so important and so needed. And I'm just thrilled to collaborate with you today. And I hope in the future as
1: well. I can't thank you enough for having me as a guest. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: The love and life hack for this week is medicalization is not the only option. As Christine reminded us today, we can take empowered action to level up our mental health through nutrition, movement, and mindset. Thank you, as always, for joining us today. If you haven't had the chance to listen to last week's episode with Brooke Mullen, founder of Sapan, you'll definitely want to hear the incredible work she's doing to create jobs for women in Thailand. Head over to Sapan's website and use promo code LOVEANDLIFE for 15% off your order. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abrel, and until next time, make it a great week.